Hello everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Dr. Jack, where uh, we discuss pretty much anything related to psychology, from psychology lectures to interviews with people in the profession to even psychology students who are on their way to becoming a professional psychologist in some form or fashion. So welcome back. And uh, this episode, I recently spoke with a community clinical psychologist. Her name is Githaka Talwar. Talwar. Uh, I had to practice that many times, so hopefully I got that right. Um, and she is working in the state of Washington at a university counseling center. And her nickname is Dr. G, spelled G-E-E, and we'll discuss that. You'll hear that later in the interview. I think it's very interesting. And I thought this was a very fascinating conversation because it's not every day that we get to talk about these kinds of issues that she is focused on in her practice. And that has to do with not only focusing on well-being being a holistic idea, but also concepts like decolonization of mental health, liberation, um, how the concept of mindfulness has been culturally appropriated by Western psychology. And so I think these are, and we dive into a few other issues as well um, related to um, multicultural psychology, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, She also has her own podcast called Wellness Minutes, and she was also author of a paper called Therapy as a Tool in Dismantling Oppression. There's another thing I wanted to bring up, and that is we discuss um, a little bit about white supremacist ideology. Now, I I want to um, bring this up, especially for those who are not really that familiar within the United States, our discussion about white supremacy as an ideology, right? I think even most Americans might think of the term as being sort of this uh, very extreme a literal term of white supremacists like the like the KKK and and white nationalists and these white supremacist neo-Nazi groups and certainly that's a part of it. But when social scientists talk about the white supremacy ideology, I want you to think about and we do discuss this in the podcast. But I want to lay a foundation here so when you hear it, you don't have an instant mental rejection of whatever's coming next or or reflexive action. Um, and that is white supremacist ideology is really just about the social structures and social norms in America that have been passed down from a Eurocentric, uh, white-dominated culture, right? And, of course, because they're social norms, we often don't pay attention to them because this is just what we do. It's just how we think. is what's expected in society, right? But when you apply it to how therapy has been developed, how we view our clients applied in this context, I think it'll make a lot of sense in terms of whether or not what we were trained as in Western psychotherapy really can be applied to all of our clients in that way as a way of interpreting or examining what our clients may be going through. Okay, I just wanted to bring that up so that you pay attention when we're talking about that particular subject that we're not talking about racist neo-Nazis. We're really more talking about these social structures that uh, may contribute to inequities and, and such, uh, even in the mental health and, and uh, psychotherapy world. 
Okay. All right. I hope you really uh, enjoyed this very thoughtful, insightful podcast as much as I did. So let's go ahead and start it. Okay. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have Dr. G here with us. And uh, she is one of the psychologists and as well as a group of students who responded to my inquiry in the email to the American Asian American Psychological Association, which I'm a relatively new member, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> and uh, and I just put it out there and say, hey, anybody want to chat in a podcast format? You know, and, and a lot of people responded. So this is my first interview <laughs> from that from that request. So hello, Dr. G. Where are you? And uh, just talk a little bit about yourself. Yes. No, this is exciting. Uh, I, I love that your harvest <laughs> has generated <laughs> this meeting. That's right. It's like plant, planting a seed and then, yeah, things are growing. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. For sure. So, yes, I am uh, resting on uh, the uh, land that was uh, that has been traditionally stewarded by the Duwamish and the Suquamish and the Coast Salish peoples, the land that is now colonized as Seattle. Um, I my day job is uh, I'm a community clinical psychologist and I serve uh, the student community at a local university. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I should tell you that my first year of clinical training was at our, at my university's counseling center. Oh. And it was the most wonderful training experience. And we'll dive into that a little bit more. For and, sure. uh, and basically the, what I do with my guests is to talk about, um, their origin story, you know, um, mm. because I have students right now who are just beginning their origin story. And they may yeah. see the task of, you know, they may have a dream of wanting to be a psychologist, a therapist, mm. or in other areas. And mm -hmm. so one of the goals of the podcast is just to introduce people to just a wide variety of professionals. You know, maybe some of them have published a book and some mm -hmm. of them maybe just working quietly without much recognition, but just doing amazing mm -hmm. work. Right. So it doesn't. And also going to have students on as well to talk right. about their progress and, and what kind of challenges they face. And uh so, of course, I have a little bit of your background information, and it looks sure. fascinating. So start wherever you feel comfortable starting in terms of your journey, because your mm. degrees begin in Mumbai. Yes, <laughs> they do. So I got my undergraduate uh, degree, so my Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from uh, Bombay and uh so india and uh after that i did my masters in uh mumbai university um and that was a masters in social psychology and a year after that i was a teaching assistant that was my first gig out of um grad school in india and uh, as part of my teaching assistantship i was supposed to teach one class on community psychology. Hmm. So that was when I read about community psychology. Yeah. And uh, it was just so fascinating. Everything about it was okay. so interesting. And uh, I decided just, you know, I wanted to do some more research and I decided to join the listserv for mm -hmm. uh, the for division 27 which is the society for community research and action and that's the community psych division i joined the listserv as an international member so oh, it was okay. uh, it was free to join yeah nice and i just started talking to people and asking like is community psychology in india and i was like i'm in india but the community <laughs> psychologists are in the us do they know about community psychologists in india because i haven't heard of them mm. 
in the process i kind of started talking to people and it was uh, interesting to hear about community psych because what i think attracted to attracted me about community psychology was it sounded like such a revolutionary field it was talking it it grew out in reaction to the really restrictive aspects of clinical psychology that mm. clinical psychology was very deficit focused very labeling oriented and seemed to have like a very a uh, very straight jacketed values almost mm. and community psych like i remembered reading this one paper that was talking about the psychology of the revolution and there was mm. liberation psychology and everything and everything coming at me was my goodness so beautiful so i start chatting with all these people on the list so and that's how i met the woman who eventually became my advisor oh uh, cuz i reached out uh, she responded to one of my emails and then she said if you're interested in a doctoral program i'm happy to chat with you and tell you more wow. and she was so genuine in telling me about the ways in which i could apply to phd programs across the us yeah and then and i kept telling her about my interest she said well you know you could consider our program too and i remember thinking like oh that's really sweet of her to offer but mm -hmm. you know and <laughs> i eventually when i really narrowed down the kind of program i wanted to go to it was the program she was at mm. so i was like okay i'm doing this and yeah. then i speak to my family and my my folks were always like one of my uncles in particular i used to he used to ask me so what do you want to do when you grow up he was my grandfather's brother Hmm. and uh, i would say i want to do this and i want to do that it was when i said so i'm thinking of doing a phd he's like now you're talking <laughs> now that is something that i can yeah. Yeah. i can well, totally within asian culture just a mention of phd people family members light up right cuz they're so yeah. focused on education right yeah. but also focused on status oriented type labels they're important right now uh, we can make a judgment mm. about whether that's good or bad, right? But mm. but I think that's something that, that's the same process I had too. I was an engineering mm. major when I started college, mm. and when I was not doing well in it, mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, I gotta change this undergraduate my second year. I was like, wow, what other class do I like? You know, I haven't really done that <laughs> real exploration. And I yeah. thought, well, I liked my intro to psych class. It, there didn't, there wasn't even a professor. It was a self-paced class. You read the book and oh, go to a wow. room and take quizzes. And, it, and, and that one summer, I took a few psych classes mm. to help me make up my mind if I was going to change majors, and I, and I did. And uh, and I told my dad, and and I, I was expecting the uh, like tiger dad <laughs> kind of thing, where no, you got to be either doctor, lawyer, engineer. You know those three categories. Mm. And I had friends who had parents like that, you know, Asian American mm. friends who had very strict about what what are the acceptable fields of study. But when I mentioned that, well, I think I want to get a PhD in psychology, then my dad was like, oh, because he has a PhD in physics. So he, oh. he's very established academically, right? So he kind of understood that language, like mm. the PhD of something, even though mm -hmm. he didn't know what psychology was or, you know, what, <laughs> what you can do with it. That's always the first question. What's, what are you going to do with that? Right. Um, so, mm. and I wanted to point out also, going back to what you said, for any of the students that are listening, because it sounds like you found your passion or, or a specific field that you're passionate about after you finished your master's degree, right? Correct. Which was in the field of social psych. 
Correct. Right? And Correct. so, yeah, I did the same thing. I changed from social to counseling psych mm. and uh, very late in sort of this academic journey. So yeah. can we comfortably say that it's okay to do that? <laughs> oh, please. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, I think it's very important to recognize that we'll be evolving all the time and everything you learn is going to teach you what you like and what you dislike. I've known people who've tried different careers and actually come to like psychology after their first career. And their career taught them. So my goodness, like, yeah, going from master's in social psych to a PhD in community psych, super okay. Yeah. 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 And, and for you, how was that transition? Now that, now that we can move to that next step in terms of mm. you're studying in India, you're communicating with people. And actually, that's another good lesson too, is don't be shy yeah. about just emailing people. Yes. Right? Yes very much I mean, so i did that with this group and look what happened right so right and you did that not even as someone within your country just someone overseas yeah. and, and yeah. it's amazing how people will respond right totally let your i mean i really and i've been saying this to a lot of people recently that you know when you really are curious about something and you really care about something it could be either or you could be curious not yet care or you could be just curious and caring lean into it add an action to it i'm curious about this ask a question read a book and i think especially listservs are such a beautiful non-intrusive way of learning all the time because there are folks who are having conversations that you get to witness mm -hmm. and we learn so much from that witnessing and i think the asian american psychology association's listserv is such a beautiful example of yeah. Um, I, it's, I think among the listservs I'm on, it's one of the more communicative listservs where folks, everybody's talking. It's not just yeah. like the, the post holders who send out emails right, and then right. everybody responds. It's like everybody has a conversation, including graduate students and everything. And in fact, recently, and I want to highlight this as another example, a graduate student on the listserv happened to ask a question that generated an entire discussion wow. and then that graduate student and I have co-authored a paper. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And she's the first, first author on it. Nice. Because uh, I just realized she had the passion for it and all of that. So I was just like, let's just do this. And it's happened. So the thing is, you just lean into the curiosity, lean into the care, ask a question, join a listserv, connect yeah. yourself with the people yeah. who are doing the things you're interested in. And yeah. that's like super. That's awesome. You know, the term listserv and, and what mm. it is, it might be something that maybe our generation <laughs> was more familiar with. Oh, I don't no, know. If, really? do, you think, do you think young <laughs> students know what a listserv is? You know, it's kind of like old technology. You know, if you really? think about it, right? Oh, goodness. It's it's a mass email list, is what it is, right? Correct. A and uh, and I think, um, you know, I think young people are into social media platforms and all that, and have group chats. But I, I don't mm -hmm. know. A whole, I'll ask my daughter who's nineteen. You know, hey, do you know what a mm -hmm. list service? I think that'd be a good question. But yeah. basically, yeah. But basically, if you see it, you just um, uh. Like what's the word? You register for it, or you Correct. sign up. You need to sign list. up. You need yeah. to register. You need to be approved as a yeah, member. Approved. Right, right. And, and it's I just am, email based. That's all it is. It's, it's not a separate based. app. Right. It's, yeah. it's really elegant. Yeah. And I think it's a, somewhere. I feel like the beauty of a list service. It's also. Uh, it's a closed community where conversations mm. can take place, and they are not anonymous you're speaking and right. I have 
from a series of experiences over time where I tried to have like a professional presence on social media. I think there has been like there was this joke about social media as the place where the writer of a book has to argue with someone who's read the title. (laughs) And (laughs) I remember just feeling like there was so much of the the beauty of the work people were doing that was being pushed into these binaries of for you against you. There is no room for nuance on social media. Oh, yeah, totally. And I am a big fan of being liberation oriented, trauma focused and all of that. So if somebody wants to accuse me of PC culture, I'll take it with like, you know, honor. Yeah. It's it's not PC to me to be respectful of people. Right, and right. yet social media was not a place for I wouldn't want students to think they'll get all I mean, they will get a lot of rich information, but heart to heart conversations are really hard to have. This serves offer you more space and yeah. security. Yeah. So, so, so yes, yeah, so if people don't know what a list service means, <laughs> find out. <laughs> yeah, just Google it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's on Wikipedia. And, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I, that's a good example with political correctness. There's so many terms that used to just be relatively mm. neutral, right? Mm. And now they're just so politically charged, right? right. In one direction or the other. And um, mm. like the word woke, right, was mm. originally kind of a good thing. It's like you have a sense mm. of conscientiousness about race, mm. you know? Mm. And now all of a sudden it's, it's, a, it's a dirty word to throw at somebody. Oh, you're so... Mm you're so woke and you're so PC and this taking sides, right? I mean, everything's about yeah. taking sides and it's, it's really exhausting. Yeah. 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 So yes. So, so I do love listservs for that reason. It is a closed community mm-hmm. um, and so many interesting conversations take place in there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So, yeah. so let's, I want to dive deeper into community psychology. Because mm-hmm. during my schooling, I really did not get exposed to uh, this field in depth. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and you you mentioned certain aspects of community psychology. So yeah. maybe we can, we can talk about how what do the community psychologists do? Uh, mm. What are the main tenets of it? Like, is it right. advocacy? Is it you know? Mm-hmm. How would you describe it to a layperson? Yeah. So since I'm a community clinical psychologist and Mm. I end up doing therapy inspired by my community psych foundations, a very concrete thing that I would say about community psych as a field is it's a space that ensures that therapy adapts to the client and not the client adapts to what mental health is supposed to be like that therapy adapts to the client's definitions of well-being um, and it's strengths focused it's recognizes what the client is already doing right and how are they okay right is like a judgy word but how is the client at the heart of it trying to navigate their world and whatever they are doing to recognize to recognize whatever the client is doing as at the heart of it, mm-hmm. an effort to navigate a really, really complicated world. And they are trying to navigate their suffering. So how can we, instead of looking for a way to pathologize it and say like, gotcha, that's what you're doing wrong. Right, right, right. It's like, oh, how are you doing this? Yeah. How are you actually taking care of yourself? So it's very strengths focused. And it also, one very concrete way in which community psych practice was 
what came to me was that when a program was designed for a community, there was this one program I'd read about where the, when the program was designed for the community, the manual was then eventually gifted to the community. And mm. that's it. It wasn't like, oh, now that we've learned this, let's just generalize this to everybody else. Right, right, it right. was like, no, this program was designed to, uh, to honor your cultural values, what mattered to you. And there was another program in which the researchers or the program developers went back to the elders of the community and the elders were so offended by some mm. of the ways that the researchers described their findings. Right. And they were like, is that what you saw from mm. all our conversations? That there's alcohol abuse? And so, you know, and right. folks were like, oh, we need to respect uh, and recognize that the community's feedback is important. So it kind of collapses that hierarchy. The researcher knows everything and the community is just like right. there to be observed. Right. You know, equal. I mean, we are co-creating constantly, which is which is why. So I think there was just that beauty of community psych was at the heart of it. Des ensuring that mental health was a field where that was adapting to the values of different communities, which mm. is why a lot of things that happen in mental health or whatever techniques or therapy programs or whatever, right. I'm very mindful about who were they developed with? Who mm. did the research continue with? Mm. Did it include, for example, Asian American communities? And I like I've been talking a lot about the cultural appropriation of mindfulness, for example. Yeah. And I'm like a lot of mindfulness centering programs weren't even developed with Asian communities. Right. And so I find it offensive when people say, let's culturally adapt mindfulness based interventions to Asian Americans. And I'm like, excuse me, it's not called <laughs> cultural adaptation. It's called cultural reclamation. Oh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't make it seem like you are going to adapt mindfulness based interventions to Asian communities. We got this. <laughs> Help us reclaim it in yeah. our mental health spaces. Yeah. So what is community psych? I would say for me, community psych is like a pathway to ensure that mental health is responsive to our communities and isn't a place where, again, you know, somebody tells you what's wrong with you and your community. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and what you described on the other side was that top-down approach, right? Oh, the, the, yes. ex, the expert versus the the lay person mm -hmm. who doesn't know Correct. what's happening to them. And it's garbage, my job. Garbage. Yeah. It's my job to uh, enlighten you as to what your problems are. So it's not client centered yeah. at all. Totally. Right? It's, the, it's the opposite. And, yeah. and that reminds me a lot of NGOs, you know, they may not be doing therapy, but just in terms of different kinds of charities or, or these groups mm. that go to help people like during a disaster or whatever, or different mm. places around the world. And and that just reminds me of some of these groups that are arrogant enough to go in and say, oh, you all need this. And spend Jeez. tons of money, right? Ten, spend Scream. tons of money throwing it at the problem without even considering mm. that, well, what are they telling us they need? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's a Absolutely. Simple, it's such a simple kind of thing, but then basic. often ignored. Yeah, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so basic yeah. when, when you yeah. think about it. Right. Sometimes I've had, um, I've been in meetings where I might say something that to me is so basic. I almost feel like, oh, will it be like strange that I'm saying something so basic and someone will say this is really insightful. And I'm like, goodness, where have you been? <laughs> this is so basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and that reminds me of a phrase from a book where it was, uh, I think it was called mm -hmm. the I forgot the book title. That's the sleeper effect in social psych. You know, mm. you forget the source of the information, but uh, someone coined the term uh, the curse of knowledge, right? Mm. And I think it 
the idea was that once you sort of learn things within your specialty area or your level of education, you kind of make this assumption that whatever you learned doesn't have much value because everybody must know this stuff. You know, it must be right. common sense, you know, yeah. and like you're saying, it, it seems basic to you, right? right? But then you bring it up and maybe other people haven't considered that, right? Right. And, it's possible that our years of education in psychology did teach us something that, you know, <laughs> that, that this mindset that, and, and these things, I think it happens a lot, right? right. Um, where we don't, right. uh, where we make assumptions about, oh, you know, what do I have to, to contribute? You know, what, what do yeah. I know, you know? Um, yeah. Right. There's something else here in my notes that I thought was kind of interesting. And you just mentioned it earlier. Um, mm was uh, the cultural appropriation of, of mindfulness. I want to dive into that just a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more detail. Uh, okay. Oh, goodness. <laughs> How long is this podcast again? <laughs> <laughs> lots, we have lots of time. Yeah. As the kids say, you won the too long, didn't read version. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that it sounds like this topic can just be like a whole chapter, if not a whole course, right? Yeah. Um, and th there's so much to unpack here. I mean, the other phrase was decolonizing mm -hmm. mental right. health. And this is what it tells my students usually on day one, back when I was teaching face-to-face. -face. I'm not sure if I do this in my podcast for my online classes, but that this introductory to psychology class they're taking is actually Western psychology. Yes. Right. Oh, I'm right. so glad you named yeah, it. it. Yeah, it's based on European rules. It doesn't make it good or bad, but that's just a statement of fact, right? So whatever values that went into the formulation of the variety of theories mm. tend to come from this sort of Eurocentric uh, Western mindset, yes. right? And so it sounds like that's kind of similar to analogous to what you're saying, right? Mm. About mm. the cultural appropriation of, or the word decolonizing mental health, right? Mm. Uh, mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that kind of this? this they do go hand in hand, like yeah. recognizing the cultural appropriation, attempting to address it. And in that sense, decolonizing mental health, uh, you know, I mean, in a very concrete way, I, the fact is that the domination of Euro-American and I mean mainstream, what is called America, um, or what is called American, like, it's a very, that dominant, the Euro-American value system um, ends up also at the heart of it have, has a very colonizing mindset that the top down, we yeah. got this and you guys need to listen and you you guys need to learn right and the dominance of white supremacy as an ideology not white supremacy the white supremacy is not a person white supremacy is an ideology that ideology, ends up elevating yeah. um folks who are white-skinned and are likely to have come from europe and the folks who colonized america so when we see mental health and the definitions of mental health, they favor a particular way of thinking that actually is likely to be a very Euro-American way of thinking. Right. And it tends to eliminate folks who 
might have we all have our own unique cultures but i come from india and india is a former colony of the british right and even as the british have left they left behind a value system that has made us perpetually um a, a lot of a lot has stayed intact culturally but a lot of self consciousness around don't do this in front of white people mm. you know it'll right. make you look uncivilized or yeah, yeah. Uh, when when i think about my acculturation to the united states the things that i talk about and the things that i don't talk about the ways i dress and the ways i feel self conscious about dressing up i remembered when i use when i wear indian clothing or anything like there is that awareness that it feels like a statement i'm just dressing up yeah, in clothes yeah. i've worn my whole life right but it feels like a statement so so i think you know so when i think about decolonizing mental health i'm first of all recognizing that this westernized notion of mental health i i i i recognize that the you know when a lot of times i feel like you know the topic of western ends up forgetting that there are so many people of color who li- live in the west right. so it That's is why i sometimes yeah. say yeah. euro american but then at the same time like when europe has a lot of folks of color so i mm-hmm. end up having to eventually say okay white folks <laughs> okay white folks yeah, yeah. <laughs> naming that so i think as part of colonizing for example the british took all the things that they wanted right and then they decried all the things that did not want and over time i feel like that is what also happened to mindfulness mm-hmm. that the the western adaptations of mindfulness took the aspects of mindfulness that they wanted and then they were like okay the rest of this is not necessary right they kind of took mindfulness out of mindfulness i mean they mm-hmm. took the mindfulness strategy they took it as a technique yeah and they just were like mindfulness as a way of life huh no <laughs> we need mindfulness the technique it's breathing or whatever garbage you know yeah yeah um not it's that one it's one tiny part it's something you have yeah. to put on to do list to do correct um, do as mindfulness opposed, as opposed to this is this is part of me it's a holistic yes. aspect of living yes. our daily life Yes. Right? It's something that should be just sort of there in the background without mm. having to think, well, mindfulness, without having to sort of purposefully evoke. Mm. Right? And, mm. and that's how a lot of our cultural values are, right? They're just there. We Correct. Don't have, you know, we don't really have to think too much about them. It's just part mm. of how we do things. It's part right. of how I make my breakfast, you know, or whatever, how I it's greet elders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a part of a practice, yeah. Not and it's in technique yeah it's not just a technique it's a way of practice and the thing is and as it goes when something is a way of life it's embedded in a series of values how is it how are you being mindful um if you are judging someone for you need to relax more you know mm. like yeah. you're doing it wrong yeah like you're supposed to be really you know like 
for example, there was a study that came out recently and I, I was so furious at first when that study came out and I was just like, okay, Gitika, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> but they were talking about how secular mindfulness is associated with lowered guilt, guilt feelings and lowered efforts to repair harm. Hmm. And I remember being so angry when I read that study because I was like, this is what happens when you use mindfulness like a drug. How is it mindful if you have done harm to someone and then refuse to re repair it? Mm -hmm. When mindfulness is breathing your way out of stress and refusing to recognize your responsibility and your accountability to your fellow human beings, that that is when mindfulness, the technique, collides with mindfulness as a way of life. And the cultural appropriation of mindfulness has been predominantly like and my paper like goes over, you know, the our paper, uh, you know, recognizing my co-author, um, you know, our, our paper just talks more about the, the very nuanced ways that Buddhism was uprooted from mm -hmm. mindfulness. And like these big shots said, we decided to eliminate the cultural and spiritual references. And I was like, how are you not even once apologizing for this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How disrespectful has it been for you to never even cite the Buddhist text from which you learned? Isn't that ac right. academic plagiarism? Right. How did you get away with it? Because, because it wasn't a white man who wrote the text. So, you know, so I think there was, there was that. So I think when I recognized the colonization of mental health, I recognize the colonization has also come with telling people of color what well-being is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And with the amount of, uh, when I just recognize the United States as a country that was built on stolen land, stolen people, thrives on the indentured servitude of immigrants, do I want to learn from the mainstream values of this country? mainstream values that dominate mental health do i want to learn from them or do i want to go back to my ancestors mm -hmm. who used uh, like mindfulness has a lot of origins in uh you know what ends up being umbrella term hindu philosophy but you know the vedas right. the upanishads are ancient texts there are practices in that that were a foundation on which you know buddha eventually built buddhism uh so i mean that there is so much that was directed towards recognizing suffering, healing suffering, finding liberation, that do I not want to then learn from my ancestors if, instead of having a field that came 300 mm. years ago from the colonizer? Right. So, so I think there is that. When I decolonize mental health, I take that bottom-up approach where I... Uh, recognize the values of my community, I recognize the values of my ancestors, and I in, find ways to actually support humanity through that. Mm -hmm. And also, I have celebrated culture and I have also recognized the oppressive elements in my culture. Sure. So part of the decolonizing practice is also uprooting dominant oppressive ideologies. So in, for example, in the, when I speak about the South Asian context, mm -hmm. the caste system yes. has been a, a very oppressive ideology that has been, you know, folks want to invisibilize it. Folks mm -hmm. not, don't want to talk about it. Right. And it's like when white folks say, I don't see color. Right. And then caste privileged folks say, I don't see caste. 
well that's your privilege talking mm-hmm. and you are negating the experiences of folks who have been oppressed by the caste system so you know big shout out to equality labs that has done some profound work around naming caste oppression mm-hmm. in the indian american context in the south asian american context which again you know like as immigrants we are so worried or constantly about how we are seen So we end up like not wanting to talk about like the problematic elements in our cultures because you're like, "Ooh, you know, don't air your dirty laundry." And I was like, "And right. don't air your dirty laundry. When are you going to when are you going to address this though?" <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think somewhere decolonizing is also about recognizing that no culture is a free of its oppressive ideologies and yeah. we need to like dismantle those dominant oppressive ideologies as well. So for me decolonizing mental health is at the heart of it ensuring that mental health spaces are spaces that dismantle the separation uh, you know that dismantle the influence of euro-american individualistic values and recognize the values that may matter to my client mm-hmm. and uh, you know how do we honor that and honor definitions of well-being that honor my client their ancestors their community and all of that so the individual is not a soul is a, not a single person the individual is constantly seen as someone who is in community mm-hmm. so my therapy is also designed to how will you remain in harmony in community so you know earlier i said something about how social media can be so divisive people are constantly taking sides and all of that the fact is that i feel like we need to take this take sides with values mm. i think we end up taking sides on in like political parties you know i'm yeah, either this yeah, yeah. or i'm that right and this issue i'm either this or i'm that and it's like you know like align with values what's most inclusive and also what's least oppressive what will create less harm so i think ensuring that you're collaborating with the client um mm. in co-creating healing that is a decolonizing practice as well again you know breaking that hierarchy yeah. of the expert and the the client and yeah. that is a very colonizer mindset the savior the therapist as the savior, savior i will yeah. tell you you know the colonizer essentially came to civilize the savage supposedly right mm. like uh, no man i got this <laughs> yeah you don't need to civilize the savage so it sounds like it's both a metaphor but also mm. a, a way of viewing our clients mm. in such a different way right yeah. i mean the standard therapy textbooks right and uh, same with my counseling training like you know that we dealt with culture in a separate contained space right yes. we have a class called cross cultural therapy right yeah. every chapter was about counseling with african americans counseling with asian americans counseling with right and yeah. and, oh. and i at that at that time at that age i i couldn't quite put my finger on it but just felt wrong that mm-hmm. the whole approach of each each ethnic group somehow has their own chapter mm. uh, you know and, and i fear that people will just take that information and just generalize right whenever they see their client walk in the door saying where are you from oh i'm from taiwan oh let me get out my toolkit to work right. with taiwanese americans right mm. um and but instead the way i thought about it by the time i was finishing my degree was mm. that uh to try to understand each individual like you say in their context that right. each person has a very unique 
cultural context. Like me and my peers and some of my best friends, we all arrive when we're about 12 or 13 from either mm. Taiwan or Korea or, 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 you know, wherever they came from. And we know that our mindsets are so different than those who were mm -hmm. born here. Yeah. Even though that, you know, it's subtle and to oh. an outsider, we look like we're the same, right? Mm. You know, Asian Americans and Asian American, right? You speak English the same way, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that I came here mm. having that, uh, Taiwanese and Mandarin language and having lived mm -hmm. there, grown up there, right? Yeah, it's so yeah. different. It is yeah. very different, right? And that, sure. I, don't th I don't think that nuance can be captured in a book, right? It has to be, when we think about holis holistic approaches, right? It sounds like what you're saying is this just needs to be everywhere, mm -hmm. not right. just in a separate course, in a separate book. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I like asking people how would they address this in your family? So it's not even like, how do they express this in your community? I don't know. I can't speak for everybody. Right, don't make right. me. <laughs> <laughs> how do they do this in your family? Because it also recognizes each family's expression of culture. Yeah. And yeah. we're all. And I think for a therapist to be culturally competent, my, my point of view is that as long as you're curious and you ask questions, right mm -hmm. to get to know your client get to mm -hmm. know their point of view what their experience is like let them Correct. describe to you not just to impose what i think mm -hmm. like you said good mental health is right yeah um i have a clear mm -hmm. example of this when i was just a trainee at the counseling center the university mm -hmm. counseling center i had a client come in mm. who um was asian but not asian american an international student mm -hmm. and was very distraught over the desire to change majors, right? Mm. And mm. The, their parents are overseas, they might disapprove and all, you know, th those dynamics, yeah. right? Bad. And I was the only person of Asian descent in the whole counseling center, <clears throat> counting the psychologists <throat> and the grad students, right? And their perspective was, well, it's your choice, right? Mm. You should be able to do what you want. Not so much screw your parents, but it's that sort of mentality, the individualistic, so <laughs> yeah, it's that individualistic mindset, right? That, yeah. that this is my client. I'm an advocate mm. for this person. So mm. I should support this person in terms of what they want to do. But then, right, in the mm. cultural context, yeah, what their family feels about their choice is sort of a group, the collectivistic group decision-making mm. process that right. that the western-minded therapist is not taking into mm. account and right. right and they may end up doing more damage to her and her family right. than right than to right. help them you know yeah yeah so i often use the phrase cultural humility mm. instead because the cultural competence i feel like ended up people then decided that they had to get competent. Competent, yeah, culture. it's another skill. Yeah, it's another yes. skill to perfect, yeah. What should I learn? That's a great point. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. like, you know what? <laughs> Start with you don't know mm -hmm. and get curious. And if there is something that surprises you or you're just like a client is pushing for, but my family does it a certain way or ask a client, like what, where is the pain? What is mm -hmm. your, what is your concern? And where is, what is the underlying that, what is really important to you as you reflect on your suffering in this way? What are you realizing is really important to you? I want my parents to really approve of me. So that point at which in your head you go like, 
oh my goodness, none of my clients care about what their parents think, but this client seems to care about what their parents think. Mm. So if somebody seems to deviate from, deviate from yeah. you know, what you see typically, to see that deviation as an opportunity for the therapist to recognize this is where I need to bring my non-judgmental positive regard and recognize this is not a pathology. This is the client offering something that I have never had to consider before and bringing humility to, I realize I'm having a, I'm wondering if you can tell me more about that. Don't let on to a client. I'm having a hard time understanding this, even though in your head, you are like, I'm having a, such a hard time understanding this <laughs> because I have definitely been with clients who've said my, my previous therapist before I met like a person of color, my white therapists were just like, I'm having a hard time understanding this. So then I had to explain everything to them. Hmm. And I'm like, can you, which is why then can you put it in a therapeutic way so that the client is not left psychoeducating you, but you're truly understanding the client's world and a very, very beautiful um, paper about uh, written by Gordon Nagayama and a few others. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you a citation for that paper later. But there's this one part where they describe the interdependent self. Mm. You know, that right. the West talks about the individual self. What do you want? Yes. Take it. And that's, that's where colonization came from. You want something, just take it, you know, and like, <laughs> right. screw everybody else. Yeah. And the interdependent self is, who am I in relation to you? Because I am you and you are me. We mm. are one. And my doing this will have a radiating impact on you. But you forcing me to do this is going to have a radiating impact on me. How do we address this? Which common values do we have that I can rely on? to ask, speak to my parents about, I have to change majors, I will not survive in this one. What can we do to truly bring the harmony that at the heart of it you're seeking? Mm -hmm. And how to not see your desire for harmony as that's your weakness. Mm -hmm. You long for harmony. Right. You need to like get over it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. and I think that's where the, you know, that like, I feel like that was one very concrete way that I, I noticed, oh, the individual self, is seen as more important than the inter, inter, interdependent self. So like even even, you know, this enmeshment that they talk about, uh, you know, enmeshment, because the right. family is so involved in your decision making. Oh, right, right, right. And I was like, can you stop pathologizing the way we live? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that or that it's not uncommon for a child to be living mm. with their parents until marriage yeah. or even after marriage they live in the same household right yeah, yeah multiple generation households yeah and, and there's this uh like you're saying not so much pathologizing but just labeling of what's correct and incorrect right correct you know that kind of thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for sure for sure i i, I mm. think one thing i struggle with when i was teaching um, these kinds of multicultural subjects in a classroom and especially being in the States, is that white students tend to feel left out of the conversation, mm. right? That mm. whenever the word ethnicity, the word culture comes up, mm. uh, in their minds is like, well, I have no culture, I have no, you know, when you mention ethnic food, right? They're not thinking hot dogs, you know what I'm saying? When when someone in yeah. America is saying ethnic, it's, it's attached to color or a person of color. Right. And so the way I think of it is as, as when you're saying being culturally curious mm. instead of competent 
if if I were or culturally still, humble, humble. Mm. There you go. Yeah, yeah. culturally humble. That 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 applies to any of my clients walking in the exactly. door. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because there's so much diverse experiences of white students in America, white people in America. That mm -hmm. that's also another group we cannot just put a simple mm -hmm. generalization on. Right. Mm -hmm. like, like it's like the the same thing with the book, right? You can't just have right. a chapter say, oh, okay, counseling white people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They <laughs> should come gonna... up with one. <laughs> BIPOC therapist counseling white people. <laughs> yeah, I should go back to my multicultural counseling book, see if there was a chapter for counseling white people. There wasn't. They'd um... not considered BIPOC therapists. <laughs> they were expecting that, you know, white therapists would be saving the world the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I feel like, I don't know. The, the approach mm. needs to be sort of this, if we're going holistic, has to yeah. include everyone. If we're, if we're yeah. calling ourselves humanistic, that has to include everyone. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I do invite my white clients to share with me about their ancestors. Mm -hmm. Share mm -hmm. with me. What, what, was, what are the values in your family? What is important? And that's what, like, I don't come at it with a... Um, you know, I mean, I, and that's why I'm very conscious about white supremacy as the ideology. And it's not like an aversion to white people. It's an aversion to an ideology that oppresses white people, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, one concrete uh, evidence of the harm of white supremacy to white people is that the highest rates of deaths by suicide are among white men. Mm. They are least likely to get help and yeah. they are most likely to use really lethal means. That's one very concrete evidence that white supremacy does not, at the heart of it, it will kill white people too. And so many white supremacist standards of professionalism, perfectionism, yeah. grit, grit your way through it, don't feel anything or whatever, that is just not human. And I mean, people get to get away with it. But the thing is when, yeah. uh, you know, so, so the thing is that I often invite my white clients to recognize how the standards that they are operating by are not serving them mm -hmm. and inviting folks to recognize their own humanity. And uh, white supremacy as an ideology has dehumanized all of us. It has made us all become like these monoliths. You're Asian, so and so is white, you're nothing but white. But our work is in relationship with each other. So how do you and I come into good relationship with each other where we can actually see each other as people? And if I'm not able to see, if someone is not able to see me as human, then that's, that's a problem. So sometimes like, you know, like in mindfulness circles that are hurt by my, my supremacy, there's this assumption that, oh, we are all one. I see you as one, and which is why let's not talk about race. Because, right. you know, we are all people and it's like, no, let's talk about race because the racism has made it hard for me to feel human sometimes. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how I am dehumanized. So by the same token, it's like, how do we ensure in the therapeutic room, we continue to humanize ourselves. And I invite white folks often to share with me about their families. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much is known about Irish um mm -hmm. Celtic rituals, so beautiful. Irish mm -hmm. music is so mm -hmm. beautiful. And uh, I'm like, where is, where is the conversation about your culture? Right. And do you miss it? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, folks do. Yeah. And white folks have also been 
told that i mean if you're if you're white american you're just white right. where is the room for irish italian swedish German, so yeah, yeah. so you know so I, i feel like when folks feel left out of a conversation i would like them to recognize that grief that what is it that makes you not feel like a part of the world because yeah. there is something here for you how ask how come your food hmm. is not considered ethnic food why is hamburgers not ethnic american food right right yeah <laughs> you know every, every food we have has an origin right yeah yeah, yeah. It, it didn't come out of nowhere it didn't come out right. of a vacuum right who told you that wasn't ethnic food <laughs> yeah and you know I, i used to say this to folks that you know all these anthropologists who went to all these different cultures and went like oh interesting people they you know they eat this they dance like this and all of that and i was like all of us international students need to do like an anthropological study about coming to america Mm-hmm. It's so strange. They eat with plastic forks. Yeah. Why would anybody eat with plastic forks? It doesn't even cut anything. <laughs> And it's so strange. They have, you know, they don't nap in the afternoon. What an odd culture. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So who's doing the anthropological study about American right. culture? Yeah. Everybody's ethnocentric, I feel. Mm. From their their per- particular perspective, right? Mm. Um Mm-hmm. Uh, on my wife's side of the family, she's Burmese uh, American, mm. right? Oh, Myanmar. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I remember one of their her uncles and their family visited the U.S. for the first time. Mm. And even though in Burma, you know, it's predominantly, you know, economically stressed people, you know, yeah. poverty levels really high. There are right. people with money, but still, just mm. the the general environment, it, you know, for for most places that we've seen, it's just mm. not. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't look like the states, obviously. You know, in, mm, in that sure. regard, right? Aesthetically speaking, but mm. uh, but that sense of ethnocentric pride is very strong. Right. right. I remember the the uncle would say certain things about, you know, even though we're in a nice rental car, you know, traveling throughout California coast and whatever. Uh, sooner or later, he'll say certain things about how oh, it's better in my country, you know, for <laughs> for certain things, right? And and that's just how it is, you know. Everyone has sure. that sense of pride, no matter where they come from, you know. Sure, um, sure. And and they value that. That's home for them. Yeah, yeah. And it's when you combine that pride with aggression and assertion and domination and power, that's when it becomes particularly lethal. Like you know, ideally, I would want people to just. respect all cultures and all of that but that you know there is this hierarchy constantly created my culture better than your culture whatever that's fine i mean that you know it's annoying but like whatever but i think it's when everybody is expected to do it the way i do it yeah that that is when it becomes a colonizer mindset and mm-hmm. that is what you know i'm i'm actively like discouraging folks uh, as they're training in therapy and everything that don't take on that mindset of like i know what's right so right. i describe therapy as like a creation between someone who's an expert on their experience and i'm the mental health person and we are combining forces so i'll be like oh you know what you're sharing it's actually reminding me of like what the science is finding about this and i'm just wondering like how does that how does that resonate with you mm-hmm. um or studies are showing xyz thing what do yeah. you think yeah. so that co-creation you know it's not mm-hmm. me telling you yeah and again like we said earlier it sounds so basic 
but it's, yeah. it's, it's very powerful, wow. <laughs> you know, very yeah. profound. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I start these conversations with folks, oftentimes, most of the time, I don't have like a theme, you know, how a podcast has a mm. title, like, oh, I have a guest and we're talking about this. And mm. I have a feeling I, I kind of know what my title, subtitle might be for this episode, right? What is it? <laughs> um, well, it might just be sort of, you know, community psychology explained mm. uh, or mm. about the colonizing mindset, you know, that mm. kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And we can explore that later. You can help me later. Sure. I'll, I'll sure, create sure, sure. a subtitle. But it looks like we're running mm -hmm. a little bit short of time. Okay. Uh, so we got about five minutes to go. And mm -hmm. I, I, I figured we can just wrap up in five minutes. So what sure. are some some of your current professional, or it doesn't even have to be professional, passion projects that you have mm -hmm. at this moment, you know, that you're mm -hmm. sort of getting your teeth into that you would want to share? Yeah, I think very consistent with my practice, community clinical psych, decolonizing mental health. Um, I'm very passionate about supporting folks in creating uh, healing communities. So I offer like these group therapy type programs for like six weeks, support folks in creating a safe and brave space guided by like 15 group agreements where you know we commit to confidentiality we commit to um, sharing our experiences in this way and da, da, da. so we read those group agreements each time and we do that over and over and folks eventually are learning how to create safe and brave spaces with each other because at the heart of it i realized that we will all heal when we are in community mm. and each person meeting a therapist is uh, I, I think of course meeting someone individually is absolutely worthwhile as well but we don't have as many therapists as yeah. we as the world needs yeah it's and not sustainable it's not a sustainable, not sustainable. model yeah it's, the one -on -one yeah. Model. yeah and we need to take more responsibility for each other as a as a human race mm -hmm. so supporting folks in creating healing communities so that um folks can support each other and not have to only rely on individual therapists so my passion is really figuring out more and more ways to do that so i started doing that for doctoral students at the university where i work so that one we could undercut the impact of academic culture which again can sometimes mm. really elevate white supremacist ideologies in very subtle ways and folks uh ensuring that you don't internalize toxic values from academia uh, like experiences that folks sometimes share in grad school advisors saying a version of this is how my advisor did it and which is why i'm doing this to you and i'm like yeah mm. that's that's how intergenerational trauma works <laughs> right You're just passing it on yeah yeah somebody harmed you and you harm others right. so you know ensuring that folks heal so that they don't perpetuate harm. So my passion project is really supporting folks in creating healing communities. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, I really had a lot of fun talking to you today <laughs> and you're totally welcome to come back anytime. We yes. can pick another topic <laughs> <laughs> and just dive deep into it. Um, sometimes yeah. when I when I have new guests come on, you know, I just don't know how to predict it's going to go, right? Yeah. Like, oh, well, sure. are we going to have enough material to talk about? What What is going to be our sort of central yeah. theme? Is there going to be one? And, yeah. uh, and here, there was just so much to unpack. We can talk for many hours on, mm. on it. And, and I think it would just be very interesting. For but, sure. Yeah. Yes, I appreciate and... your time. You're, yes. you're awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and I hope to talk to you again. Yes, absolutely. No, thanks so much for having me on uh, on the show. And I'm really looking forward to uh, 
yeah meeting you again and of course you know supporting your listeners in knowing more about the field okay great thank you awesome okay enjoy your awesome. seattle weather I'm very jealous over here <laughs> oh <my> gosh <laughs> take care Jack. okay take care good okay. seeing you okay. bye good night yeah, bye good night